Welcome to the Interlocutor Interviews podcast. I'm Tyler Nessler, the founder of Interlocutor Magazine. And today I have with me Virginia L. Montgomery, goes by VLM. Uh, she is a multimedia artist working across video, performance, sound design, and sculpture. And she's known for her unique synesthesia-esque surrealist works that unite elements from mysticism, science, and her own lived experience as a neurodivergent individual. So welcome, VLM. How are you? Hi. Hi. Good afternoon. I'm doing great. I'm speaking to you today from Austin, Texas. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Um, so you very recently had a show at Women and Their Work in Austin uh, called I Moon Cocoon. Mm-hmm. And that was part of your ongoing examination of native Texas Luna moths. And there are multifaceted associations of the moon. So Let's just kick it off with talking. The, the show ran through November, ended on November 30th. But mm-hmm. uh, just talk a little bit about the show. Thanks. So it was my largest solo institutional exhibition to date. And for those that don't know, Women in Their Work is a nonprofit institution located in Austin, Texas, that has been operating as a feminist um and women-identified persons exhibition space for over 40 years, which makes it actually one of the oldest feminist art spaces in the entire country, which is uh, ironic because most people don't think of Texas as a place that would have the oldest feminist organization. But as many know, Austin is kind of an oasis. Um, So I had an exhibition there, and I had the benefit of being able to take over this large gallery space where I exhibited new video artwork, where I had large video projections throughout the space, um, a really nice sound system. So there was an immersive soundtrack. And also on display, I had several sculptures, including Mm -hmm. um, sculptures with stone elements, since I also do some stone carving, and photographs, photographs from my um, central work, Moon Moth Bed, and these photographs feature my collaborations with Luna Moths. Right. Which is what really drew me to your work to begin with. Like, I I loved that you collaborate with Luna Moths (laughs) as part of your practice. And Mm -hmm. so when did you become interested in in Luna Moths? What eventually sparked your idea of of actually, you you hand-raised them. I do. I do. So um, ever since I was little, I've always loved the natural world and I just never gave up interest in it. So I mentioned that in part because I think for a lot of folks, maybe their first encounter with a butterfly or say a luna moth up close might have happened when they were a little kid exploring the forest or maybe in a science class where you were raising um moths or butterflies inside. And I I just kind of kept that up all these years. Yeah. So um, raising different moths and butterflies and beneficial pollinators has been something that I've loved doing for years and years. And it was really only in the past few years that I began incorporating that into my video art practice. Um, I think, uh, you know, as an artist with a lot of different interests, it's, it's, you know, there's certain things that I've segmented to different parts of my mind. And so I brought the moths and butterflies into the video artwork. And um, yes, 
I, I do try as much as possible to collaborate with them. And what I mean by collaborate is that to set up an engagement and a counter with the Luna Moth where um, we kind of both have equal agency within the small set or the film dynamic. So I, um, I really try to create an environment that the Luna Moth feels good in. And it's also um, kind of delightful just to see them navigating these little sets that I build and they're just kind of living their life and I'm documenting it. Now we did uh, an interview in the magazine edition of Interlocutor, um, Mm -hmm. which came out late last year. And then you had also mentioned that um, part of working with the Luna Moss was it kind of came out of the pandemic. And you had mentioned, you know, when you're stuck inside your home, didn't you feel like you were living inside of a, a cocoon? And so <laughs> yes. that, that kind of like pushed you into like, sounds like deeper research and collaboration with the moths. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I wasn't able to leave my home to go to the studio. So my home <laughs> right. became my studio, uh, as it did for, I think, many artists. And so everything inside my home also became my studio. And that that included my um, little insect friends that that did suddenly become collaborators as I was working on video art. And, um, and it was during that time of the pandemic that I did I really start to think about the interiority of physical spaces and kind of um, how architecture that confines our bodies can both be uh, very soothing and keep us safe from the world, but also begin to feel very oppressive. So I think many of us that were starting to feel very stir crazy. So um, it's true before the pandemic, I did not think of my apartment as a giant cocoon, (laughs) (laughs) but during the pandemic I did. And uh, it, it it allowed me to then think about creating these surreal environments that both integrate Luna moths and um, miniature scale domestic items from my apartment. So for example, um, in moon moth bed, I, that video, I sculpted a miniature model of the actual bed that I sleep in, like an antique four post shaker bed. So that way, like I would be going to my bed at night and the Luna moth could you know, hypothetically go to her bed at night and we both would be having this shared experience within our apartment studio environment. I love it. This is a, a much more dynamic approach to dealing with the confinement of the pandemic than just binge watching <laughs> Netflix, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, I think during all the time that I was, that I was inside, I, I, I began to think about my space as a kind of an obstacle course. And I was going through <laughs> every day and different right. choreographies. And then, um, and then I began to think about making an insect obstacle course for my little Luna moths. And, um, you know, that's what led me to start doing things like uh, tying tons of little bells to sticks and then filming the Luna moths crawling over the sticks that then would shake the bells. And then I would have a soundscape that I could say was authentically authored by a Luna moth. And that was, that was cool to like co-author sound design piece with a Luna moth. And so that was, yeah. Yeah. that, (laughs) That was like my, Oh my gosh, that was, it's so funny to go back to those moments of that period of the pandemic when we were all we really 
didn't know what was going to happen. And I think um, kind of in an existential way, I didn't know if the pandemic was ever going to end or if that was just going to be forever. So I, yeah, I thought if I'm, if I'm sculpting out my forever, I might as well be doing it in this way that feels um, happy. I want to be spending my final days making art with Luna moths and listening to little bells. (laughs) What a way, what a way to go. If you have to go that way. Yeah. (laughs) Well, actually this kind of touches what we're going to touch on this later, but of the overall philosophy of uh, it's pan psychism, right? You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 con- the consciousness being within everything. Um, we'll get, we'll, we'll get back to that later on in the interview. Cause I found all of that mm-hmm. fascinating and I had never really, I'd heard, you know, pieces of those theories, but you really cohesively kind of like integrated a lot of, a lot of those ideas, I think, into this, this exhibition in particular. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the inspirations for you uh, in terms of the experimental movements in I moon cocoon um, was the butterfly effect, or is also known as the Coriolis effect, correct? Mm-hmm. So uh, could you briefly explain the ideas behind these effects and, and how they each work in unison as expressions of meaning? Yeah. So most of my work is uh, inspired by different, I guess you could say algorithms that exist within nature. And then I love thinking about and conjuring these kind of surrealist worlds that are implementations of those algorithms. And so in relation to um, the butterfly effect, it was an experimental mathematical idea that came out of MIT in the 1970s that hypothesized that small movements within a data set or system could over time and unexpectedly cause big changes, big effects later in the data set. And so the narrative example that was used within the butterfly effect was this hypothetical situation that somewhere in China, a little butterfly was flapping her wings. And then the movement of that air pattern would be absorbed into the earth's atmosphere. And then all the way on the other side of the world in Kansas, there would be a tornado that would have developed. And the butterfly effect, I have found fascinating for many reasons. I particularly like the social position of the butterfly effect, how it can be used as a social metaphor to inspire others to commit to enacting small changes with the idea that yes, small changes over time will build up and cause change within a system. And, you know, socially that was very important for me to focus upon as an artist, especially Mm -hmm. during a time as we are now, which there are so many things in the world to be sad about. And it is very hard to feel like we have agency at all in a world that is filled with, you know, so much chaos and so much war and yeah. And so, um, Butterfly effect, breaking things down into little pieces. And um, and then to answer your question about the Coriolis effect, that is a idea that comes out of physics, which talks about uh, particles in motion. And the Coriolis effect is this tendency of all little bits of matter, especially in terms of weather patterns as well, to want to circulate. So the Coriolis effect is the reason why hurricanes are circular and not triangle. Mm-hmm like a triangle shaped. Right. 
So um, all these different systems of movement and, you know, the the base atomic structure of why things are round and why things move in circular moments and how, you know, little particle relationships can sculpt big round things. You know, that's all the the subterranean thought behind a lot of the film practice I have and also right. a lot of the objects that I'm drawn to. Right. Yeah. You uh, talked about that in the magazine interviews and the importance of just circles also in your work. There's a lot of mm-hmm. circular imagery in your work. And then also talking about the butterfly effect extending beyond not just this planet, but universally, right? Mm-hmm. Throughout the galaxy. <laughs> so something could happen, you know, in the universe that could have, you know, have a down, a downward effect. Um, and other parts of the yeah. universe, which is mind blowing to I me. Mean, I never thought of it at that scope. I know, I know, and I, I, you know, should should preface by saying, by no means am I an expert in, uh, you know, quantum quantum theory, but um, it is, I think, a helpful mental exercise as a way of decentralizing your ego to think that we are, <laughs> yeah, all, um, you know, assemblages of of physical matter and consciousness, and we are probably being influenced by all kinds of of forces that are outside of our knowledge which might be triggered by the explosion of a um a star a kajillion billion zillion light years away yeah (laughs) well you know it makes me also think about like when you look up at the night sky like a lot of the stars you see don't exist anymore too yeah we're seeing we're seeing like the past for the most part I mean, with mm-hmm. my kind of like limited understanding of, of, you know, um, you know, the universe, but yeah, that's also kind of mind blowing. I know, which, which just reminds me, um, you know, being an experimental video artist, I'm a huge fan of the work of Namjoon Pike. And, uh, he made some early work that alluded to this relationship of the sky being kind of like a video screen and, um, uh. Yeah, the, the amount of like fantasy that you have to extend to watching a video to believe in the video in the same way you have to kind of extend fantasy to believe in the sky because yeah some of those stars might be obsolete but anyway <laughs> obsolete stars <laughs> yeah yeah so you were also inspired by dr donna donna haraway um <laughs> this book when species meet and so this there's this philosophy of panpsychism right um so what is the most important teaching element to you of this philosophy? How do you believe that the, the your exhibit, I Moon Cocoon, symbolically expressed it? Yeah, so um, Dr. Dr. Donna Haraway's work, When Species Meet, I mean, she is an incredible thinker who is someone that I admire so much because her writing spans, you know, anthropology, biology, um, feminist studies. I mean, she has an incredible way of making connections between these items. When Species Meet is a, you know, deeply personal account of her developing the idea of like, what is a companion species? And it mostly focuses on her relationship with her dog and kind of analyzing (laughs) uh, philosophy and science and macro and micro cultures and, um, you know, my work is not with a dog. It is with a Luna moth. But um, I, I, I think I was very inspired by her decision to 
embark upon a philosophic inquiry that dealt with a non-human species as a companion and to um, kind of decentralize herself from that dynamic and then put so much emphasis on, you know, the non-human collaborator. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So <sighs> it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. She has, I mean, she's also quite famous for writing the cyborg manifesto. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's um, something you've encountered before, but that was kind of her first uh, major acclaimed essay that came out in 1985. And uh, she talks a lot about the non-human there, but, you know, in relation to the concept of the machine and the cyborg. And I, I mentioned that in part because one, I think it really shows the, the incredible array of thinking that she's thinking about non-humans, both as, as machines, as technology but also as, um, you know, creatures that are uh, organic, you know, made of, made of of blood and flesh. And uh, but between that dynamic, she does focus upon consciousness and you know, how does consciousness operate within a machine? And I love the fact that she wrote this beautiful cyborg manifesto like decades before AI came about. And um, yeah, 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 and species meet. It's just. A lot of emphasis on the natural world, um, which again, I think is very critical also within an eco-feminist praxis to want to kind of focus on how if we spend time wanting to elevate the agency of the natural world, then that becomes a good metaphor, a good teaching moment to then also say we should, um, you know, elevate our uh, opinions and interactions with with persons that might be um, subjected to oppression. So I always think she's very clever. It's like everything is both operating very literal within her research, but then also operating as a metaphor. And so, yeah, that, that, yeah. With this high, very high level of integration, you know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find connections and then, you know, I, I mean, I hadn't really encountered the term pan psychism before and reading just, you know, um, very little about it initially, but the the idea of consciousness kind of preceding how we think of life, consciousness as being some kind of inherent element to the universe in general. So inanimate objects can have elements of consciousness, if I if I'm perceiving that correctly, which I find kind of fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So the yeah, as you mentioned, you know, panpsychism is the view in um, mentality that uh, consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous to the natural world. So it panpsychism does not in a way fetishize or believe that consciousness is this unique or fantastical quality. It instead propositions that pan, uh, consciousness arrives with material and so that would mean that consciousness operating somewhat as a force would be akin to gravity. And so the same way that gravity affects all matter, consciousness affects all matter. And uh, I, when I learned that, it it just kind of, it blew my mind because I, you know, I think there's many animist philosophies and indigenous traditions that talk about consciousness being omnipresent and existing within um right entities like stones and rivers and luna moths but the idea that consciousness also could just be a part of a dslr camera 
due to the very nature that a DSLR camera is just <laughs> made atoms, that um, that blew my mind. And then it yeah. made me really think every element within my studio being being kind of a conscious entity that I was interacting with. And um and again I also love the fact that it it uh normalizes consciousness, it kind of demystifies it. And I think again to speak of a metaphor, if we start to think about everything around us as being conscious, I would hope that that would also encourage people to be more thoughtful about how they engage with the world and not be as a I don't know, wasteful and violent and think about agency, you know, think about things like um, if you're going to carve a stone, like does the stone actually want to be in the shape that you're going to carve it in? That's something that I think about a lot, actually. Cause I, I do feel very sorry for all the, all the beautiful rocks and stones that are carved into horrible sculptures of <laughs> terrible oppressors. I always think, gosh, those poor rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Rox, yeah. they didn't want to be. I'm you sure. just gotta hope that they're happy with the shape they wound up in. <laughs> or, 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 or because matter is always shifting, that you know the very marble or limestone that they are constructed of will eventually erode down into smaller particulates, and so maybe it'll they'll be liberated from that uh, sculpture state when they're wow. little particulates. That's right, because really, when we're talking about like matter at this level, nothing is permanent. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you... So um yeah, sorry, but yeah, when I'm in the studio, I mean I I I think about those incredible scale shifts. Um yeah. and that's that's something that also really excites me to think about. Um, you know, the roundness of a gigantic black hole and the roundness of a teeny little atom. And then um, you know, what I love about video art being non-linear storytelling is that you can make that association between those huge scale shifts. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and then also um, you had spoken of it as a tool for political action, panpsychism. Mm -hmm. um, you'd mentioned in New Zealand, the, there was a river that was given the same legal rights as a human. So it could not be exploited yes, using essentially yes, this philosophy. A, yeah. That was a 2017 ruling. Um, mm -hmm. I apologize. I can't remember the name of the river off the top of my head, but I know that it is a size that, uh, and, and it, it's something that's frequently cited within panpsychic theory. I mean, I also think if you're a metaphysical philosophy nerd, you know, that, that's, that's one of like the winning things that you can point to, to be like, yes, you know, this, this theory actually can be used for positive political change in the world. But um, yeah. And, and to bring it back to Donna Haraway, I mean, I, I would imagine that's also something that inspires her research as well Is that, you know, I think someone could critique it as just being academic esoteric uh, prose, but that, um, yeah, it really, it really can be used politically to, to protect natural resources and, um, and giving them the rights of the person. They can't be exploited. They can't be harmed. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I want that for all the rivers, you know, <laughs> I think they want that for themselves too. So, oh sure, of course. Everything. Rivers, creeks, brooks, <laughs> <laughs> lakes, and all other kinds of natural objects. Um yeah, you know, I mean, and, and this kind of approach to thinking about the natural world, uh, of course, goes against so much of I don't know, Western cultures, how we've perceived, you know, um the how, you know, just the, the earth is for us and it gets easily, you know 
exploitable and the infinite resources and everything. So of course, yeah, these are all very important ways mm-hmm. to kind of recontextualize thinking about the planet that we live on and our place in it and also how small our place in it and mm-hmm. the universe at large is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the kind of the way of, of kind of reshuffling the way that we're perceiving these things, it makes me think of like what happens to people on psychedelics, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because I think what the main thing that psychedelics do is they just drop the veil that most people mm-hmm. are, you know, the operating system that most people are working under that are, they're basically huge filtering systems, right? Just so we can operate, yeah. you know, how we've evolved, you know, as primates, basically just to, mm-hmm. you know, exist day to day in our environment. And then, but, you know, so a lot of people take psychedelics to do that, but you're, you have synesthesia. So I you're do. already, and you're neuro, neurodivergent, right? So mm-hmm. you're already kind of operating from, uh, you know, a different <laughs> perceptual place, right? I so, Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a funny thing to take in. And um, I do have synesthesia and uh, there's different forms of synesthesia. And many like, different, the more I read about it. Yeah. There's many different forms and like all, all types of neurodivergence, it all, presents itself on a spectrum as well. But um, for me, the strongest sense that I have is the association between sound and movement. Right. So everything that's moving inherently has a sound quality to it. And so um, there are times where the interior of my brain feels like a very noisy place. Like it can be very delightful, but very noisy. And so you know, one of my ways of being able to exist in a world, I, I I have to kind of quiet that down and not give that much space to those noises and that synesthesia phenomena I have is that, you know, I'm moving about the world. And you had called but, it hear, hearing motion synesthesia. Yeah, hearing motion yeah. synesthesia. And yeah. um, the best way I can explain it to someone is um, if you've ever watched a GIF on your computer, like an like a little animated GIF, and there is no sound to it but right. your mind just kind of creates a sound to it. Oh it's, yeah. yeah. That's the experience that I have kind of all the time, but uh, it's what I like about it though, in terms of my art practice is that when I sit down to make a soundscape, when I'm scoring one of my videos, I I really just listen to the sounds inside my mind. And so my, my psyche just composes and then I just search for Foley sounds that I can then layer together that match kind of what my, what my subconscious is weaving together. And so it's been, that's been a helpful aid in having otherwise uh, a condition like synesthesia, which doesn't always feel very applicable to living in late stage capitalism. (laughs) No, no. And many environments, you know, like I can't imagine how, like in New York, if you, when you go to like a gigantic city like New York, that's just nothing but a cacophony of noises all the time. It's it's, it's, it's intense. I, yeah. I lived in New York from 2008 to 2020. And my, my strategy for getting through New York is that I just permanently walked around with big Bose headphones all the time. <sighs> and um, even I would have earplugs under those big Bose headphones. And people would sometimes ask me, like, what music are you listening to? And I'd be like, nothing. <laughs> just trying to cancel out the sound. And um Trying to maintain you know, your sanity. Trying yeah. to maintain my sanity. Trying trying to create some like mental thinking space. And again, right. that 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 
experience I just shared, I think if you've ever spoken to other people that are neurodivergent or, or, you know, also on the spectrum, I think it's a shared experience that um, one is just hypersensitive to stimulus. And so little, little bits of sound or color or texture that might be benign to the average person can feel like um, overwhelmingly uh, wonderful or terrible to, to someone with a neurodivergent sensitivity to stimulus, but um, yeah, but yeah, well, my this it, it becomes a weird superpower at times. So <laughs> right. I don't want to demonize it too much. If anything, I'm very proud to be neurodivergent because, um, yeah, it it's yeah, I like being a part of a community of people that, uh, yeah, maybe perceive things a little bit differently. Well, to me, it seems absolutely foundational to your work too, to your artistic practice. I don't, you know, you probably wouldn't have approached a lot of, um, you know, you, you wouldn't have created the art that you do without, you know, already having synesthesia or being neurodivergent. Yeah. I would imagine. It's, it's, it's true. And, you know, I, I've only started talking about my neurodiversity in the last few years. Um, when I was getting my MFA in the Yale sculpture program, you know, about five years ago or so, I didn't talk about my synesthesia back then, because I think I naively made the assumption that other people's brains were encountering my work the same way, or I, you know, kind of, I, I guess I just assumed and speculated that some of the processing that I had, like synesthesia was shared. And so it's only kind of only over time, I realized like, oh, no, these are these are very idiosyncratic things that just exist within my, you know, organization of yeah, so <laughs> it's fascinating because i've you know so it, it sounds like it, it kind of took you a while to realize that this is that's not quite how everybody perceives yeah, it, I, I, it, I, it it took me a while i mean <laughs> i had been diagnosed as being a little as being unique you know kind of on the spectrum and when i was a little kid but um but it, you know like oftentimes with a diagnosis of of you know you know, having like high functioning autism or dyslexia, it's like, once you have that diagnosis, it's like, well, what do you do with it? You know, sometimes that means that an individual pursues additional therapy so that they can excel in a particular area like dyslexia, spend more time reading. But then, but then beyond that, it's like, what can you do? I mean, there's no, there's no magic pill that fixes anything. Not that I would say you'd have to be fixed, but you know what I mean? So yeah, I mentioned because it, it did, did kind of take me a while to um, identify those parts of myself because I I always knew that they were there. And for years, I've been teased by by folks for being eccentric, but it was only over time that I realized that those uh, eccentricities were also shared by by other people in the neurodivergent community. So in a way, they weren't that eccentric. It was I was just looking at the wrong data set, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I mean, I have a friend who I was talking to recently, uh, who has like, um, minor synesthesia, you know, so it took, like, he actually said to me, I think it was, well, when you, th when you think of the number five, you don't think of the color Brown. I'm mm -hmm. like, no, <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. And I think in that moment that kind of, that, and you know, he, 
you know, he's like, mm-hmm. in a, you know, he's an adult and he's like, wow, I thought everybody kind of saw Brown when they thought of the number five or see the number five. I think that's the example he used, but and it's, um, <sighs> and I, you know, that makes me think of that old adage, like you don't know what you don't know. And so, um, yeah. you know, there, there's so much about our, um, sensory experiences of human life that we may not necessarily say out loud because they sound too obvious. And so, um, yeah, w- when you have synesthesia, there, there are all these things that in a way you're just assuming that other people around you are, um, you know, like yeah, yeah. when I see a leaf fall, sometimes I hear a flute sound. And so I just assume <sighs> everyone around me is hearing like a cacophony of beautiful flute notes when leaves fall and um, i want to i want to have that experience <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, i mean it's lovely it's lovely it's 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 also very annoying sometimes sure right it's just, you know i'm i'm sure your friend he sees the color brown when he sees the let uh the number five but he's i'm sure your friend is still able to like do algebra and geometry and his taxes and that doesn't get yeah. in the way so you know. right yeah, I, I just remember being struck by how surprised he was by that. He just thought, oh, mm-hmm. I, he just literally, from what I remember, just said, oh, I thought everybody saw that color mm-hmm. with that number. And you don't, you don't experience that at all. And I'm, and, you know, and I've always been, I don't, far as I know, don't have any synesthesia. So I've always been really intrigued by it because I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have any, you know, uh, color or sound, connect, you know, unusual mm-hmm. connections. Um, I mean, you had also mentioned that when you, uh, see somebody, when you see the, a human eye blink, you hear the sound of a water droplet echoing. I do. Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> I do. I hear sounds of water, water drops. And I, um, for many years I had a, I had a really hard time making eye contact with people when I spoke with them, which I think kind of surprises most people because when folks first meet me, they usually think, oh, you're such an extrovert. And if anything, I'm like, no, I'm efficient at masking. But yeah, I would look at people's eyes and then I would just hear these water drinks. And, uh, you know, over time, you know, I learned how to to handle that that strange situation. And it wasn't something I would say out loud because, goodness, I didn't want people to think, I was crazy. And when you're already neurodivergent, you're already kind of stigmatized as being a weirdo. But um, but when it comes to editing video art, I, again, I just kind of would look back at video footage I'd made of blinking eyes. And I was like, oh, great. Now I just get to choreograph these sounds to these micro gestures of eyelashes fluttering. And um, it's very satisfying for me to be able to externalize that experience that I'm having of Oh, I can imagine. I yeah. yeah. Well, in the video, Moon Mothbed, I feel like you conveyed that really well. Oh, thank the you. The water droplets and just the the whole the whole uh, soundscape and visual aesthetic of it. I think I got I got a obviously I, I'm not getting the full experience, but I get like a, a very good impression of. You oh, know, good. Yeah. Well, that was my experience with it, anyways. I'm like, wow, that's cool. I want to I want to be inside her head for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, it's it's, it's, it's very um, soothing. I mean, it's a very soothing video too. Thank you. I know you I, said the experiences aren't always soothing, but at least the way you conveyed it, it was. Oh, it, that is true. The experiences are not always soothing, but for me as an, an artist, um, especially the past few years, I mean, I've been making video art now for, for over a decade. 
which kind of shocked me the other day when I was looking at, you know, my Vimeo and how many years I've been uploading things. But um, yeah, I, you know, looking at all the different work that I've made over the years, it's really only been kind of since 2020, since the pandemic that I've intentionally trying to been, be making things that are soothing. And I think that's in part because I just want to lean into collective healing because I feel like the the shared zeitgeist that we're all experiencing right now is just so tough and so hard. There, there's just, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, just so much chaos and war and pain in the world. And so I, I think as an artist, you know, we get to show up and how we want to in the world and make art about what we want to. And I always know I'm going to have my obsession with circles and water drop sounds, but if I can package that within a soothing space, then that makes me um, feel happy that I can contribute something that is helps uh, mitigate some of that external chaos and suffering. Yeah, we all need it. Instead, sure. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I yeah, I mean, it's it's our bodies are flooded with cortisol and stress hormones these days, and so I think about uh, the soundscapes that I make. I mean, I like them because they they um, they help me like regulate and find like a nice resting heart rate so anyway (laughs) yeah yeah well we're we're recording this four days into the new year and i have a lot of dread about this this year you know and i'm so so Mm -hmm. you know and i mean we're doing this over zoom and you know Mm -hmm. the internet and technology is wonderful in that sense that i'm able to talk to you like this in real time and record it you're you know we're a thousand thousand fifteen hundred miles apart something like that um Mm -hmm. but you know the flip side of that is you know all the doom and gloom that we're subjected to constantly Mm -hmm. and then you know this concept of doom scrolling which i can't help but do Mm -hmm. all the time you know i'm very curious about what's happening in the world but just getting more and more you know horrified so yeah i honestly i i wished that i could have seen this exhibit in person because it felt like more of a full immersion you know um (laughs) with the the visuals and the sound and and the actual sculptures and the whole deal i think that would have um thank you um, (laughs) healing design yeah yeah i yeah lighting design was also a big part of the exhibition so i had just this kind of beautiful uh blue violet uh lighting gradient within the space and um i also yeah, thought no, it, it was like very great space. go ahead sorry oh i oh i was just gonna say i yeah i wanted it to feel like a space that was welcoming and inviting and that people could you know on one on just a very superficial surface level just look at beautiful macro imagery of luna moths and if they wanted to dip into some deep philosophy they could read some texts you know available you know look mm-hmm. at the catalog for the show but um but yeah it was it, the soothing stuff is really important to me i i think in part because i'm sure you're someone that also spends a lot of time inside art museums and art galleries mm-hmm. and i just realized recently you know, I won't name names or name shows, but there were a couple of works I walked away from and I was like, I just don't feel good. And I already am struggling to feel good. And so again, I just really wanted to orient, orient my art practice in a space of, it's still, it's still nerdy, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, but at least you, 
you know, walk, walk away feeling um, lighter than when you entered. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that is a good approach. And then there's other, other artists who, you know, take it to completely opposite. They're going to maximize, you know, the, or maximize the uncomfortableness, right? That's their kind of agenda. That's what they do. Yeah. yeah. And I, <laughs> which I think can be effective too. I think then kind of also kind of yeah. reshuffle the way you think about trauma or traumatic experiences mm-hmm. or, you know, um, you know, but that, that's just, that's not your jam. <laughs> that's not how you approach it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just not, it's just not my flavor, but, um, yeah. <laughs> but, but I do want to like, ultimately I'm incredibly supportive of any artists doing what they need to do to, um, make cultural, make a cultural impact and also, you know, talk about something important, significant, but I will admit being, being someone that is very frequently overstimulated. I do. I do tend to move more into the, the space of wanting like blue lights and water droplet sounds. Just more of a chill, more of a chill space. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I I love that space. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, I want to mention to our listeners that for every one of these podcast episodes, I put up a page on the interlocutor site and um, I'll incorporate the videos and um, the imagery from, from your exhibit, um, much of which were also included in the, um, you know, the magazine, the online interview that we did. I'll just move those over as well. So people can, who are listening, if you want to get a sense of this, you can just pull up the page and take a look. So um, one of the things I wanted to get to before we uh, wrap up here is your your sort of parallel career um, mm-hmm. as a graphic facilitator or visual ideation scribe. Neither mm-hmm. neither of which I had ever heard of, um, but so cool and unique. Um, so you, you basically travel the world and you diagram the development of ideas at group meetings, like generative generative group meetings, like TED Talks or DEI events or innovation conferences. <laughs> so just talk a little bit about how this career and your work, um, you know, as a fine artist kind of cross pollinate, you know, how do they, how do they mix together or are there, do they oppose each other in some ways too, sometimes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So graphic facilitation is a very unique career in part because it is very niche I think there are only about a hundred working graphic facilitators in the U.S., and we are often invited into brainstorming spaces to be able to rapidly synthesize ideas and to kind of describe to people what that may look like. You know, imagine someone in front of a large whiteboard that's you know four feet by eight feet, and I have to in real time fill up that whiteboard with visual notes that represent what people are talking about in that moment. And I never know what people are going to say, but I've been trained to be able to listen to people talk, think about it, write words to describe it, and draw a picture to represent it all at the same time. And so graphic facilitation is this incredible form of multitasking and wanting to create ultimately a mind map style infographic that represents what the conversation was about in a way that um, both engages engages the audience because we all know, you know, sitting in lectures for hours and hours and meetings and hours and hours can can be draining. So 
the purpose is to engage people and then also to make a graphic that is a um, a tool, an educational tool where you can look back and say, oh, yeah, that's everything we learned about. And then share that graphic with other people and say, this is yeah. what we talked about. So that's that's graphic facilitation, um, how it operates, the reason that it operates. And then um, the travel part is a big part of the career as well, because I do it in person and I am someone that clients know they can drop me into a meeting and I'll be able to to create this graphic for them. So part of the skill set is being very performative and having to embrace a lot of improvisation. And I I do I do travel a ton. I mean, I think I'm like I'm I'm on the road traveling at least at least 20 to 30 weeks out of the year. So this past fall, for example, I was on an airplane every week for 11 weeks straight. And it's a lot. Um, but I do get to go to a lot of really cool events, a lot of cool TED Talks where I get to learn about, you know, people that are developing innovations in solar cells to, you know, hopefully mm. facilitate a day without fossil fuels. So I I get to learn really cool things and be around people that are outside the arts, but doing really cool things in engineering and science and healthcare. So it's it's very energizing for me. So I like that part of it. But I will say it's 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 a day job that's 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 tough sometimes. But to answer your question of how it relates to my fine art practice, um, you know, both of these, both of my fine art and graphic facilitation are are improvisational. It requires a lot of creative thinking, really fast on your feet sometimes. Yeah. But you know, graphic facilitation. And video art are both mediums that are associated with storytelling and are both mediums that use symbols to communicate Mm -hmm. ideas. So I have to use a symbolic language of, you know, drawing, drawing a picture of a light bulb to communicate innovation. That's like what I would do in um, graphic facilitation versus, you know, in my fine art practice, I might grab onto a symbol of a Luna moth to represent transformation because for the most part, cross-culturally Luna moths, moths do symbolize metamorphosis and transformation. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where they overlap is that it is, it is um, being able to use symbols as a language to kind of speak to people on this uh, very subconscious level. And uh, where they differ though it's graphic facilitation that I'm doing for a client, like say um, United Nations. I'm I'm very conscious of wanting to make a graphic that is functional, that mm-hmm. can engage and educate. I want it to have a purpose. I want it to be clear. I want the, the meaning to be very understood and concrete so it's helpful to people. When I make my fine art, I'm not focused on clarity per se. I I allow ambiguity to come forward. I want things to feel surreal so that right. way there's those symbols can function as multiple meanings. And um I want it to be more mysterious. So that's how they really differ is that my fine art practice is away from my my mind to really go into Yeah. 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 Do, do you do, do your inclinations towards more you know symbolic presentations 
um, mm -hmm. kind of bleed over sometimes into your your work as a graphic facil facilitator that you kind of have to push back a little bit to try to take a more concrete approach? Oh, um, oh, when I'm working as a graphic facilitator? Yeah, because you said you, you know, you essentially, that needs to be a little bit more straightforward, less symbolic. But it, it oh, feels yeah. like your natural inclination is to, you know, express more symbolically. Oh, oh, oh. Um, so I think, I think symbols can be straightforward. I guess, you know, with the graphic facilitation, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be layering that many symbols simultaneously. So I guess to give an example, um, if I was doing a graphic facilitation um, image and it was all about the future landscape of AI, I might start to actually draw a landscape, a, a landscape with trees and flowers and mm -hmm. bushes. And if I commit to that landscape, I'm going to continue to draw, you know, pine trees and oak trees and flowers and bushes, but I probably won't put in cactus or a desert. I'll try to keep mm -hmm. that landscape symbol very specific and clear to a, you know, Eastern forest landscape. But in my video art practice, if I was wanting to make a video work that represented a landscape, I would probably put in like a five second clip of a desert and then Antarctica and then a forest and then a jungle in video art space. I would just let all those different landscape layers um, coexist on top of each other as a way of embracing complexity, uh, visual right. complexity. But yeah, in the graphic facilitation, I would stick to one, one landscape design concept and that'd be forest. So I hope that's, that's kind of, an example of how I would handle um, different symbols under different conditions. Right. Yeah, no, I was just curious about like how your kind of natural inclinations, if you had to push back against them a little bit to, you know, do the graphic facilitator work um, to make that effective and approachable for everybody. That, that's just what I was curious about. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. and also one thing I was wondering, so, I mean, you said there's only about a hundred people worldwide who are doing mm -hmm. this and and how long have you been doing it i've been doing it for over 10 years now i think wow. i think technically 11 and a half years so what do you think you'd be doing professionally if you hadn't fallen into that field because it's I such a it's such a distinct thing <laughs> yeah. I, I i don't know I, <sighs> I fell into it in part because i moved to new york city in 2008 I moved to New York City right before the recession happened. And when the recession happened and I was fresh out of college, I could not find a job anywhere in the arts. I very, very much so wanted to work at an art nonprofit in New York. And I couldn't find a job, but I desperately needed to make rent. And so I ended up getting a job at a, um, a experimental market research consultancy doing admin stuff, basic stuff, but it was within that environment that I encountered graphic facilitation since it was, you know, a tool that we used during um, focus group meetings. And they brought in a contractor who was a graphic facilitator and I met her and saw what she was doing. And I was like, I want to do what you're doing. I have an yeah. art background. Um, you know, I by no means think of myself as an expert within like the business consulting world, but, but I actually think a lot of artists... Are, are just, we're just so good at problem solving on the fly. And I feel like that's so much of consulting world, especially when you are coming up with ideas for 
new products or how to position things. It's just, it's just idea generation. And we're so good at that as artists. So anyway, I reached out to her and um, I was kind of her apprentice. And, uh, and then later was trained even more at a small graphic facilitation agency that coincidentally was located in Brooklyn. There's only about three or four graphic facilitation agencies in the country. And the one in Brooklyn, I worked there for a few years, built up a lot of experience, especially working at large public conferences like South by Southwest, because it's it, it it's a strange thing, you know, to be working in front of, you know, 5,000 people, 5,000, you know, 10,000 eyeballs. It's, it's yeah. so it was helpful to get experience <laughs> there. And, um, and then after that, I, I have been a solo independent person for a few years. So um, I own my own small LLC. Technically, it's called Big Bright Visuals. And um, yeah, I've been I've been primarily supporting myself as a graphic facilitator now for over a decade. And I have no idea what I'd be doing otherwise. I mean, <laughs> I'm an artist. I've always just done art, you know. Yeah. So I guess I'd be doing something art art oriented, but I don't. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe I would be working at a natural history museum to do conservation and repair. Oh, that would make sense. I could see that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think because I feel like I'd be one of those artists, you know, repairing the taxidermy creatures and, you know, repainting (laughs) the, um, you know what I'm speaking of at the Museum of Natural History in New York. I feel like I'd be on that team. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Well, you had also <laughs> talked about the per- performative nature of, of the graphic f- f- facilitation work, mm-hmm. right? Have you done any kind of performance art? Like, have you tried to present any of this in a performative way, like in a fine art context? Um, yes and no. So I do I do identify my art practice as operating within performance art, in part because mm-hmm. every time a a hand or an eye appears in one of my videos, it's my own hand or my own eye. So I am performing in front of the camera. The, um, you know, presenting graphic facilitation within an art audience is, is sometimes a strange thing. I I did that a few times when I was at Yale. And what I realized is that uh, I, I don't, I, I think, trying to choose my words carefully here, but um, something that I thought was unique to my own experience, you know, being in a very art-centric environment is that I've spent a significant amount of time working, being around folks outside the arts that, you know, like I said, like might be working in AI or healthcare or might be nurse practitioners Mm -hmm. or, um, and so I'm very accustomed to looking at information dense media and and encountering it with like a very open mind and also seeing how um something like graphic facilitation can be used purely as a tool to to educate whereas when i've presented graphic facilitation to art audiences in an art gallery you know without the context of it being at a large conference, um, you know, I think I think the art audiences were um, they they could be there were more questions around like, well, why why are we talking about you know 
healthcare? Why are we talking about um, like oncology treatment solutions in this white white box gallery? And so there's, you but know, this feels just, like a conference. Yeah, not yeah, and, and, and not and, and it's interesting. Not all <clears throat> art audiences want to engage conference like topics of you know how do we how do we stop cancer? And so I. I've just learned over time that while I have a lot of space to be able to hold these different ideas, that sometimes um, there there are a lot of folks that you know want art to look like art and signify art and be a signifier of art and signify its artness. And the graphics <laughs> right. I create for graphic facilitation are so earnestly about um, transcription of of data that I think that can be. I don't know. I, well, I, I can, think, I can yeah, see artists sorry. being like, this is too on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's very well said. Yeah. I've been told that like, this is too on the nose. Which is always, you know, I don't understand myself in an artistic context. I don't understand why that's always a bad thing. I can see if, you know, you I, don't want to be too totally. obvious, but yeah, pe- that, that's, that's always like a big, oh, it's too on the nose. It's just, it's too direct. It's too on the nose. Not symbolic it's too enough. Yeah. yeah. It's looking too earnest and yeah. Like earnestness would, is bad too. There's another thing yeah. I don't totally, I don't totally get. Or it's, it's yeah. too cringe. I I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. So in those moments, I never knew what to say. I was like, you know, I do earnestly, I, I am earnestly trying my best and I'm not, I'm not interested in um, like the performance of ambivalence. And so <laughs> That's a good way to put that. Yeah. Perform, <laughs> performative ambivalence. Performative yeah. ambivalence. I also think that there's certain <laughs> subcultures that exist within the art world, specifically, you know, I don't know if you've heard the term like dark academia. It's like academia art theory that embraces this nihilistic viewpoint. Um, I, I, I'm totally not about that. Like I am about education, hope, and healing. And so what yeah, I do both right, right. location and my art practice, I, I, yeah, I'm not interested in nihilism at all. I'm interested in health and trying to take care of this planet and all yeah. of us to take care of each other. And I don't care if that's uncool. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's kind of what I was getting at earlier when we were talking about um, the more confrontational art, right. Mm-hmm. And nihilistic art. Um, and I, I hadn't heard the term dark academia, but yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. And that's very prevalent. And as I said before, I think there's some validity to that approach, but maybe leans a little bit too strongly in that direction sometimes, you know? So mm-hmm. yeah, nothing wrong with your approach at all. I think, I think we probably need more of that and less concern about, you know, seeming too vulnerable or, you know, too uh, yeah. earnest. Um, I think vulnerability is fascinating. I, I mean, I, I'm a big fan personally of Benet Brown. She's a TED Talk speaker who's spoken on vulnerability and I've gotten to scribe for her before. And I love what she says about vulnerability and that being a real mechanism to get to the truth of anything. And I would hope that many of us as artists, you know, that's that's what we would care so much about is a is is a authentic rendition of of human experience, you know. Yeah. And um I think vulnerability is yeah, it's it's an avenue to achieve that. Well, so what's next for your artistic projects? Are you working on anything right now, or what's in, what's I coming am. up? I am. Hmm? So this this April, 
I will be presenting a small solo show at Alana Miller Gallery, which is in New York City. Um, it's in the kind of Soho area. So I'm currently thinking about new works to put in that exhibition. And um, I'll probably be continuing some of the themes from the I Moon Cocoon exhibition at Women in Their Works. So similarly, it will be this synesthesia as surrealist landscape that orbits around lunar themes and luna moths so that is that is what i'm working on next um, oh i love it all right well i'm in new york <laughs> i definitely want to check that out what what gallery yeah. is that again alana miller gallery okay. and my show will be opening sometime in mid-april okay cool <laughs> yeah i will definitely aim to make it to that um well listen it was great talking with you vlm and Thank you. <laughs> so much, you know, I mean, again, uh, I, I'm, as I said, I'm glad you're doing this show coming up in, in the spring in New York. So I get to experience mm-hmm. some, of, some of this, you know, in person, um, especially mm-hmm. since you said you're, you're doing, you're kind of, a, you're taking a similar approach to the I'm in Cocoon show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Um, be, everybody be on the lookout for that if you're in New York. Mm-hmm. Um and also, thanks a lot to everyone out there listening. You can find us online at interlocutorinterviews.com and on Instagram at interlocutor.interviews. Plus, visit our YouTube channel. And if you're a fan of our arts coverage, you can sign up to be a subscriber or donate via Patreon. Just click on the Patreon link on our site, and I'll be back soon with another Interlocutor Interviews podcast episode. Mm-hmm.